0: Yay! and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, R.D. Today is Tuesday, the 21st of November, and our topics this week are what the hell happened to HMAS Toowoomba in international waters off the coast of Japan and infrastructure projects that have been axed Every state and territory has had some infrastructure project axed. It could be good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it. Of course, then we'll have our 2 ticks town talk in between, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with deep, and we'll finish off, as always, with the 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up this last week. Adit, what's been going on?
1: G'day, DK. Hope you're travelling well. Uh this week, well, actually, a bit of an update. Last uh, week, I mentioned uh, whether or not I expected to have extra activity in the dreaming. Uh, oh yes, give, yes, yeah, I said the just from my uh, records that I've been keeping the last six months. This first quarter following the the new moon seems to be more active, and I true to form. It's I haven't I give I give it either a one or a two rating. So most of the days are zero. If I have sort of if I are aware that I've had a few sort of dreams of of note, then I'll give it a one. If I think wow I had a couple of really good dreams and some of them are very memorable and they're very strong, then I'll give it a two. So you know in this quarter there was only there's only a, a few of those those days. But once again this quarter has sort of stood out. You know it's it's like uh probably 30% more than any other quarter of the the moon cycle. So, oh. yeah, for those people who are interested, that was yeah. a little update on my moon dream cycle. Uh, aside from that, I'm chuffed with myself that we actually had two orchids flower. Oh, now, beautiful. Yeah. Look, now for people who um, are into the orchids and get them to flower, they sort of think, oh, okay, fair enough. But I've had years of not having anything flowering. With orchids and just oh. sort of thinking, oh God. So, a couple of these, we'd put them into um, a- an area where they were sort of getting a bit more shade, a bit more moisture. Uh, I-, I made a point of feeding them. And, yep, they are, they? what are they called? One's a, um, oh God, I should know these names. One's a cymbidium. Which is, I think, that's the one that's sort of the the flatter type of flower, and the other one I can't remember. Those ones that set, that send out those big spikes, of like a whole lot of um, a whole lot of flowers on them. Ones that you typically think of it as as orchids that you know a whole bunch of of flowers. I should know that name. Can't remember it. Uh but got two flower stri- uh, f- spikes are. Uh, yeah so very pleased with myself it's a it's a bit of a bit of an achievement so hopefully i can continue to uh to get it on so yeah that's um that's cool that's- i'm
0: totally gonna burst your bubble
1: because we have all <laughs> <laughs> we have orchids,
0: and we seem to be able to get it to bloom <laughs> pretty <Yeah>. consistently and, <laughs> and again i can't take any credit for it uh it was uh uh, my grandparents purchased uh, this lovely little orchid for my wife right. uh, after the birth of our third child. Instead of getting her flowers, they bought her an orchid because they know that's oh. her favorite flower. Because my wife has impeccable taste, uh, and <clears throat> it had it was flowering when we when we got it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like we need to enjoy this because it'll we'll never see these flowers again yeah. orchids are really really difficult uh to very very fussy but uh one thing i read was uh your orchid should be able to see the sun but the sun shouldn't be able to see the orchid meaning don't put it into full sun it needs to be in basically in shade all the time uh but with a little bit of light so putting it on like a windowsill um seems to be Warehouses is, is on the the leeward side of our house, uh, on the southern side, so it really never gets sun very much at all, uh, and it right. seems to be really really happy there. Uh, I'm I'm scared to move it because I feel like like if I move it, then it might just die. So, so. Do you feed, feed it, feed um, anything? No, we just give it a little bit of water. It's 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 in uh, sort of like a mossy substrate, not in soil, um, oh, yeah. and we just make sure that that's kind of moist, um, and yeah. it seems to bloom. It, it, it's the what I think is like the quote-unquote, typical sort of orchid, like the white with the sort of pinky, purpley middle bit. Um, yeah. So, like a only,
1: single sort of flower. Oh, not single sort. Yeah. But sort of like, like it's not a whole. Like individual. Not big, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah not, not like a whole bunch of them together, yeah. Yep. I think at the moment it's blooming and we've probably got four flowers on the wow. plant. Pine. The plant's probably, I don't know, 30 centimetres tall. It's not very big, but oh. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we just got it in the perfect spot or but yeah they are very temperamental so um
1: oh well that's a good effort because they're, they're an attractive flower. Oh they, they, uh, yeah, yeah they're lovely. They they are lovely. They got and they're a strong flower. Look I, I I do like a whole variety of flowers but uh my favourites tend to be ones that have got very sort of strong petals, like orchids, and really, you know, yeah, they, they hold their, hold their shape. They've just got a bit of bit of oomph to them.
0: No, so, I agree. Yeah. Dainty little flowers are a bit—I don't know—they um, have their,
1: their place. I mean, I, I, I think of sort of the the westringias we've got that uh, their flowers are fairly delicate, and we've got these other things, fan flowers on the um this the side wall of the um the dam and they're like they're smaller flowers and there's some of the tea tree actually even the t- the tea tree flowers are small but they've got a they've got a uh a sort of strength to them as as well so mm. yeah, look some of the little some of the little uh little floppier ones yeah but that's not not on the top of my list
0: no now I've had something really weird happen to me today, actually. Really? And uh, I, so I promised it's it's raining here today. Th- hallelujah. Thank goodness. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's actually rained over the last couple of days. And my daughter, uh, she she goes to daycare, but only Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So she uh, has been a little bit stir crazy because we've been sort of cooped up in the house for the last couple of days. Because here in Queensland, if it rains, no, you don't do anything. <laughs> um, there's nothing to do. <laughs> So, I said to her today, I was like, look, we need to get out. We need to go do something. Um, And she said, and she's very clever, and she remembered a few months ago uh, that the the boys and I – Uh, had McDonald's for dinner and she missed out because she was away (laughs) away with her mum at the time. So Uh, she said, you didn't take me to McDonald's seriously like three months ago. So I said, okay, uh, let's go to McDonald's. I'll get you a a cheeseburger and, you know, happy days. That way we're getting out of the house, right? So we go to McDonald's and... We were eating our food uh reasonably close to the register, and it was quite quiet you know uh mcdonald's this this particular Mcdonald's wasn't very busy on a on a tuesday uh it was fairly early for lunch as well it was about eleven o'clock um and this older gentleman walked in and he i don't think had ever been to a Mcdonald's, huh because huh. he had He had a, a lot of questions. Uh, he was probably in his 50s, I would guess. Uh, but he had a lot of questions about the burgers. And, like, wow, he'd that never... Old. Yeah, never been to a McDonald's. He didn't know, he didn't even know what a Big Mac was and he was asking questions and all sorts of things. And it occurred to me that I feel like that's weird because it's almost like, you know, who doesn't know what McDonald's is? Like, where did this man come from? I had so many questions, uh, but I'm not that person. I didn't ask him and be like, did you just walk out of the bush or something? Um oh. He was dressed reasonably well, and he had an English accent. But yeah, he wow just never I, had McDonald's before.
1: You weren't tempted even just to. Uh, I did sort I, of drop a slight hint that that might be what you were thinking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of looking at him, and you know, not staring, but I was looking in the the because his back was to me uh, while he was ordering. But the the. um I don't know what to call them. The the employee at the register. I was going to say the the waitress but that's not quite right. Uh mm. she kept making eye contact with me and had a bit of a smile on her face. So obviously this was not something that they've ever had to to do either. So it was just a, it was a bit of a weird interaction uh Ooh. for my Tuesday morning. Um, that is a bit like, odd. It is a bit odd. Even still, you know, my kids know what what those sorts of things are just to find someone out in the wild that didn't, had never been to McDonald's is a bit unusual. Mm. Now, speaking of unusual things, uh, what the hell happened yeah. to HMAS Toowoomba? Uh, really simply put, Australian naval personnel have sustained minor injuries after they were subjected to a sonar pulse from a Chinese warship. So HMAS Toowoomba has been operating in international waters off the coast of Japan in support of the United Nations mission to enforce sanctions against North Korea when the incident occurred last Tuesday. Naval divers were working to clear fishing nets from the Australian frigates propellers when a Chinese warship... started operating its hull-mounted sonar. According to Defence Minister Richard Marles, the Australian frigate provided multiple warnings to vessels in the area that our diving operations were underway. He said... Despite acknowledging Toowoomba's communications, the naval vessel approached at a closer range. Soon after, it was detected operating its hull-mounted sonar in a manner that posed a risk to the safety of the Australian divers who were forced to exit the water. We know that the People's Liberation Army Navy is aware of the dangers of active sonar to humans, as they have formally issued similar warnings when they have had divers in the water during port visits in Australia. So, basically, they know what they were doing. A spokesman for the Chinese, Chinese military has said that Australia has made, and I quote, a reckless and irresponsible accusation over the incident. Hmm. Warships and submarines and other naval platforms use sonar for two main reasons. The first is to safely navigate deep waters and avoid obstacles. This is mostly for submarines. Uh, and of course, anti-submarine warfare as well. Sona, what is it? What the hell is sonar and how does it hurt people? <laughs> uh, so, it's two types of sonar. There's active sonar and passive sonar. Passive sonar really is very basic. It just uses a, a hydrophone, which is literally an underwater microphone, uh, and it, you just listen. You listen for signs of nearby ships and submarines, uh, and as because it's passive in that way, it doesn't reveal your location or anything like this so this is used by submarines a lot as well as by warships a lot uh and you're basically just just listening out for for noises in the ocean Active sonar, though, is what most people think of when they think of sonar. This is the, uh, the ping uh, that you hear in movies and TV shows. So the active sonar is used to determine relevant pos- positions of submerged objects by emitting a sound that travels through the water, reflects off that object and bounces back to a receiver bit like how radar works. Sound signals are not continuously uh, emitted rather these short bursts or pings uh, during operation and they can detect an underwater threat and then use that information to help triangulate its position. Naval ships and submarines don't always use an active sonar though uh, an active sonar sends a pulse of sound that gets reflected back Like I said, like the movies. So it is something you, it's not always on. It's something you have to specifically tune, set it, listen, and send off the actual sound. Now, active sonar, unlike passive sonar, is not silent. It is very loud. Of course it is by by the action of sending the pulse of sound out. So generally speaking, it's beyond deafening. It's about 300 decibels underwater. So to give you an example of, of how loud this is, a typical lawnmower that you'd hear, you know, when you're a bit hungover on a Saturday morning cursing the neighbours. Uh, mm. They're between, a lawnmower is between about 80 to 90 decibels. Um, of course, electric ones are significantly lower than that, but we're talking about, you know, petrol, petrol-powered petrol lawnmower. Um a rock concert or, or something similar to that maxes out between 100 and 120 decibels. At about 120 decibels, that's where we consider hearing damage to occur. So every 10 decibels is a tenfold increase of volume and sound pressure.
1: It's a logarithmic scale, isn't it? It's
0: exactly. So it's a logarithmic scale. So every 10 decibel increase is tenfold increase because of that a logarithmic scale. Now, three hundred decibels is two hundred times louder than a ten decibel, a hundred decibel rock concert, and the shock waves. Of course, the decibel unit, the sound, the quote-unquote sound, is really actually a. a uh, sound pressure wave that we're measuring so if you think about it not so much as sound as more like a a small shock wave is probably Mm. a better way to think about this so of course a 300 decibel shock wave if you're very close to this this potentially has enough pressure to rupture human organs through the skin like a small bomb uh so, to date, no human has ever been recorded from dying from being caught in a sonar ping specifically, but marine animals actually have, unfortunately. Mm. So, we have sources all around the world, of marine mammals in particular, whales, dolphins, uh, and fish that have died from sonar shockwaves. Uh, we've also seen, and you've probably heard about this in the news, uh, that it can disorientate uh, porpoises, particularly and whales, uh, and that will cause them to swim in a panic into dangerous areas, or like we've seen in the past, whales beaching themselves to get away from the sound. Yeah. So it's pretty full on active sonar. Is so loud that you can actually hear it above the water.
1: Wow! Look, you, you, uh, were you going to mention that uh, that YouTube clip yeah. that you sent to me?
0: So I haven't got to that yet.
1: but Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. It,
0: it it reverberates through a submarine's hull underwater. So submariners. They're aware, even without a hydrophone, depending on how close they are to the vessel emitting an active sonar pulse, the the crew can actually hear it. And sometimes during right. anti-submarine warfare, uh, uh, like war games and things like that, uh, the, <laughs> the anti-submarine <laughs> warships will purposely, throughout the night... Crank up the active sonar, even Whoa. if they haven't detected Yeah, <laughs> huh. you know, e- even if they don't know exactly where the submarine is, the fact that it could be in the area they'll pump it so that the submariners will have a hard time sleeping because you know there is a tin can under the ocean, and there's a lot of noise going on pulsing oh. through 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 the submarine so huh. um this whole thing has been a pretty full on uh and really disappointing Chinese escalation, uh, you know. It, in my mind, it's it is pretty violent. Um, you know, they, yeah, they didn't shoot at our our warship, but this is very close to doing so. They put they put our divers in severe danger, and f- through the grapevine, what I've heard uh, unofficially uh, is that they. Definitely have sustained hearing damage as a result. So, um
1: yeah, look, I think it's it's a very fair argument to say that it uh, equates as a, an assault or attack. Now, yeah, with things at this level, um, I can understand people, you know, particularly diplomats not wanting to get too hyperbolic. However, if I was walking down the street and someone—if um, oh, someone got yeah, know yeah, one of those um, those air horn cans or something—yeah, um, yeah, the, the, if if I was walking down the the street and someone blasted me in the ear with one of them, I would consider that's the equivalent of a physical ta- attack, even if there was no contact made. So I I tend to be strongly on the side of. Yeah, there's a very good argument that this was a deliberate and physical attack on another nation in international waters.
0: Exactly. And you mentioned uh, just a minute ago about I, I sent you a, a YouTube video uh, <laughs> that was filmed by some divers uh, with a sound warning, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure exactly where they are, uh, but it, it looks like a tropical reef somewhere um, in the South Pacific or perhaps Hawaii, and as they're swimming, uh, there is an active sonar pulse that pumps through the water. And I told you there's a, a volume warning because even the recording it blew out the, the microphone of the GoPro or, or whatever sort of camera they were using to record. But you can imagine how incredibly disorientating and frightening uh, that would be as you're diving underwater. Um, your lovely little dive suddenly gets interrupted incredibly violently by the, the sonar pulse. And I think we might put the link in the description uh so that our listeners yeah, can we'll hear it too.
1: We'll, we'll throw it into the the, the sources. Look for yeah. for me, just to describe it, if I decided that I wanted to make a pair of headphones out of two smoke alarms strapped to <laughs> my ears and let them off, that's how it felt listening to it.
0: Yeah, that's probably an apt description. It's it's incredibly violent in the amount of, of noise. Um and, and of course you can imagine. In a military setting, uh, you know, full disclosure, what what the Australian government has told us so far, we don't know if that's legitimately the case or not. Um, but at this point, I think we're just assuming that, look, as a Navy veteran myself, I can tell you that fishing nets getting caught in a propeller is, is something that's not as uncommon as you would think. Uh, there are a lot of ghost nets and things like that floating around. So there's no reason that this isn't a legitimate um, excuse for why they had divers in the water. I can't imagine why you'd have divers in the water in that area otherwise. Um, And for for a Chinese warship, basically to approach after it was told that diving operations were involved. So we've got human beings that are vulnerable in the water. (laughs) They approach and then turn on this owner. You know, it's just a disgusting uh, abuse of trust, really. It's very similar to what they've done in the past with, you know, shooting lasers uh, at uh, aircraft that are flying past and things like that. It's it's very much... uh, Half of the course with our interactions with the Chinese military, unfortunately. What
1: well, you think is you th- the, the shooting lasers at uh, aircraft, you do that within sort of the bounds of uh, Australia, and it's a um, yeah, a criminal offence. You know, and it's a criminal offence because of what can happen and how it can impact. So you know, the same principle applies just because it's um, military, and presumably their lasers are even more powerful. But even if they're not. The same principle uh, applies
0: I think it just boils down to all of these instances boil down to the Chinese government and by extension their military. the culture within it is that they do not respect their neighbors, they don't respect the you know the international rules-based world order that we currently have. And what concerns me is they seem to be escalating or these sorts of occurrences are becoming more common. Um, And that is a worrying trend.
1: It is a worrying trend. I um, had deliberately complimented Albo um, last week on the the visit with Xi Jinping and the the benefits of having peace. However, actions like this speak louder than than words, and you do sort of wonder uh, what's going on behind the Because obviously, we're not going to get told the truth. I mean, we're not going to get told the truth by the Chinese Communist Party. We're not going to get told the truth by the Australian government. There's there's a certain amount that you know, comes out and could be inferred by experts, etc. But continually poking diplomatically has effects and we've seen that through we've seen that throughout history where you have a, a nation that's poking another one and poking another one sometimes in that you know that bully sense of you know not touching you, not touching you, even though they're sort of hovering near your body face or your your nose. It has that bullying aspect to it and it bothers me. What's the thinking that's trying to get this provocation happening and what are they trying to provoke because you know much as um, I have different opinions on on different governments I don't think you could consider the uh, Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping to be to be stupid you know they've they're certainly uh, very strategic um, uh what's the uh what's what's the warfare um description that there was two chinese generals at the start of the um this century had released about basically warfare across economic and technical oh god what's that name it's not unconditional warfare I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, look, I'll, I'll, if if it comes to me, I'll, I'll tell you. But basically, basically, it was saying rather than fighting warfare in a traditional way, because they've seen they have seen what happened with uh, Iraq and the the powers and that that uh, the UK the, sorry the US um, army particularly particularly had and worked out well. We're going to have to fight them differently. So it includes things like hacking. It includes things like propaganda. It includes things like Uh, economic pressure, um, strategic maneuvering of supporting different nations. So rather than a direct technology, rather than a direct head-on conflict, uh, you engage in warfare in a totally different battleground to what's been before. And that was something that these uh, two Chinese generals were very, uh, very open about as a strategy. And I wonder if this is part of it.
0: Very possibly, yes, because you, you're right. You you look at it and go, wh- where do you draw the line? In this example, you know, uh, what if the HMS Toowoomba, uh decided to turn around and fire a missile? Um, yes. And, or launch a torpedo or something like that, you know. There is a point where, uh, and a user... Um, in a different sub, actually mentioned to me the example of a uh, Russian fighter jet during. Sorry, unrestri- the
1: st- unrestricted warfare is the, um, the, the term that I'm putting there. And look, God, we're going to have a lot of bloody sources in there, but I might put that, I might just put the Wikipedia link into there. It was two Air Force senior colonels. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but it was bugging me I, what it was. Sorry, I, another so- sub.
0: In um, in the war in Syria a few years ago, the Turkish were heavily involved because they border uh, – the northern Syrian border borders Turkey. Uh, and Russia actually – one of their fighter jets went into Turkish airspace and the Turks shot it down. Uh, and it was a big deal at the time, a massive international incident, Uh it never happened again. And we know from history that these sort of strongmen dictatorial leaders only uh, understand these sort of strongman actions, if you like. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, we take a, uh, you know, we change our rules of engagement with the Chinese military and open fire. You know, I'm not saying we need to start World War 3 over this or anything like this, but I think there's a point where we need to go how are we going to handle this other than through the usual diplomatic channels which clearly don't seem to be doing anything uh the the chinese are very two-faced in this way and there's a lot of australians at least online and in real life that i've spoken to as well about this uh that are very upset and uh want some sort of genuine consequences for this um and of course we can't rely on the chinese to to slap anyone on the wrist or anything like this. Um, I think it's going to have to be, I think our posture towards them is going to have to be stronger. Uh, I don't know exactly, because this is, this is the problem, right? Last yep. week we spoke about how Albanese met with Xi Jinping and relations were being repaired. This happened a few days after that. Clearly relations on, aren't that strong. It happened a
1: few days after or a few days before.
0: It happened a few days after their initial meeting, but they met again on the sidelines of uh the they're in San Francisco. Can't remember oh, what for.
1: There's Elbow over there for that one too, for the um <laughs> yes. the, the clearing out of homeless the homeless meeting.
0: Yeah, the Apex Summit, that's what they're there for. Right, right. Um so they met there again as well, and it's all handshakes and and you know the rest of it. So I think this is what, and this frustrates a lot of Australians as well. Seeing the two-facedness of, of international politics and things like that. So I think I don't know. I don't know what the answer here is without starting a war. Um, but something's got to change. We can't. We can't keep having this
1: happen. Yeah. Look, that's the that's the problem. What do you actually do about it? Because as you said, you, yeah. You know, if if you act as in you know, firing a missile. At them, well, I mean that's that's a ridiculous level of provocation, or sorry, a ridiculous level of um, escalation. Rea- reaction, to, yeah, escalation—that's a better word to to put it. But uh, smiling and shaking hands and sort of saying, "Oh, well, you know, we're doing things diplomatically behind the scenes," is is, I think, very unsatisfying to to many of us
0: exactly that's a really really good way to end this topic let's move on to our two ticks town talk
1: all right the common theme running across today's two ticks town talk is trees now the town we've got today is mengemup that's a town in western australia um 300 k's almost 200 miles south of the state capital, Perth. It's got a population of about four and a half thousand. It was named after, Manjumup was named after the Noongar words Manjin, which is a broad leaf edible reed, and up, uh, meeting place or place of. So Noongar was the uh, language, the Aboriginal people from around that area. The first tree-related theme is that Manjimup was first settled by timber cutter Thomas Muir, who took up land near the present town site in 1856. So timber cutting and related industries have been part of Manjimup's uh, history since then and right up to the present day. That's still a a big timber town. it was declared a town in 1910, and a railway from Perth uh, it was completed in 1911. A couple of little factoids about it: Menjemup um, exports ex- include marry flooring, apples, primarily to India, and oh. sp- yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that was an interesting qualification. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and spring water to Saudi Arabia, Singapore, and India. What? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I threw them in. Sometimes you read these things and you think, oh, yeah, we export to that, but it was yeah. just so specific. So specific. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Caught my attention. There also, there's also research going on about growing green tea there, and uh, there's a lot of Japanese experts have identified Manjimup as uh, a suitable area for growing green tea based on its climate, green image, uh Fertile soils and good rainfall, and also, uh, an apple developed there, the Cripps Pink, uh, was created in Manjumup in 1973 by John Cripps, Western part uh, of Western Australian Department of Agriculture. And you might better know that as the Pink Lady Apple.
0: Ah, oh, I yeah. don't like them, they're shit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh. <laughs> i was thinking i was like oh
0: is that i've never i don't think i've ever had one of those yeah no i don't i'm not a big fan of pink uh pink lady apples uh, i'm i'm a huge fan of cansy apples love a cansy apple but pink, pink ladies apple. yeah pink ladies don't don't scratch the edge
1: they made it across um made it across four continents i don't i don't mind a pink lady but uh my favorite would be uh fuji big fuji, fuji food. apples are very good too yeah yeah, yeah. i like the fuji um yes so that's a couple of the those the, the factors so now the population expanded when Manjumup became part of the post world war 1 group settlement scheme and this is where trees feature once again for for Manjumup. so the the group settlement scheme was a uh, assisted migration scheme which operated in western australia from the early 1920s uh, the Premier James Mitchell got it started and it followed on from the soldier settlement scheme, which uh, had occurred immediately after World War One, where discharge, discharged soldiers uh, got land throughout Australia. So the group settlement uh, scheme called, was called group settlement because they decided they needed to have more than one person on the property. It targeted civilians and others who were otherwise ineligible for the soldier scheme. And its principal purpose was to provide a labor force to open up large tracts of potential agricultural land um, and reduce dependence on food imports from interstate, which I thought was an interesting mm. one for WA. Rather than sort of like from international, it was more, well, how do we stop having to import food from those um distasteful people on the East Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Those bloody East Coast people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the first group settlement uh, was at Manjimup in 1921. Uh, It got 18 uh, blocks. The UK government got on board as they sort saw it as a way to get um, rid of their dole queues, and over 6,000 people emigrated under that. So Mitchell's plan, the premier's plan, was to give them uh, forty to sixty-five hectare, hundred to hundred sixty-acre land holdings to be cleared uh, of the trees and intensively cultivated uh, with with experienced farmers on there, uh, and they wanted to develop a self-sustaining dairy industry. In fact, <laughs> Premier Mitchell was nicknamed Moo Cow from his perceived obsession with the dairy industry. Uh, <laughs> So, but look, he and the, his nationalists and country party colleagues uh, thought the unlimited land resources for closer settlement were keys to the state's economic promises. Uh, unfortunately, uh, who would have thought with a government scheme the promises made to off to applicants were often unreal, often unrealistic, sometimes grossly misleading, and lots of people just said "bugger this," resigned and walked off after arrival after they saw what was ahead of them so those who did crack on uh few communities endured the hardships and um lacking lacking the necessary farming skills and uh suitability for rural enterprise and there was also often unsuitable equipment supplied for clearing the immense hardwood timber forests. now these are hu- i mean they're huge trees over there a lot of the um, tourist attractions of Manjimup involve climbing large trees for fire lookouts. And yeah, it's it's very good. It's beautiful wood, um, beautiful hardwood timber. But by 1924, 30% of the migrants and 42% of the Australians had abandoned their allocations uh, just because it was so difficult to, to clear. Look, the settlers who stayed did become dairy farmers, and as these things happened. That endured till um, sort of the 1930s Great Depression when the price of butterfat collapsed. So, look, even though the scheme didn't turn out as expected, the policy established a dairy industry, which is still running there today. So a number of farms were uh, were cleared. By group waters, uh, by group of workers, um, townships grew as a result of it, and over forty thousand hectares—it's about hundred thousand acres of land—was cleared by the scheme. So, wow. that's- yeah. So that was it. That's not the only industry that flourishes in Manjimup today. So, for the final section, let's lead in with a riddle. Why do Labradors wear booties in Manjimup? (laughs) Uh,
0: I have a Labrador. Uh, Why would I put booties on my Labrador? Because she's getting her feet are hot. Why would her feet be hot?
1: Is it something to do with bushfires? I don't know. No, I like it thinking. No, it's 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 not. Um, But yeah, that was interesting thinking. Labradors wear booties and mange them up to protect the truffles. So, ah, yeah. So this is the final part of the story, and uh, that that ties the trees and manjam up together. The truffle industry in WA, uh, it's it's been developed around the black truffle. What's that called? Tuber melanosporum, also known as French black truffle. They first did commercial plantings of the. Um, Tuba melanosporum in WA in 1997, so not really that long ago. The first one was harvested in 2003, and production has been steadily increasing since then. So, the majority of WA produced black truffles are exported. Manjumup is the leading Australian producer of black truffles, and uh, they're also involved in further research. Uh, as well in it, uh, there's a little a truffle hotspot uh, of land within 30K radius of Manjimup, and it's produced, It's responsible for producing around 93% of Australia's truffle exports. The region's the biggest producer in the Southern Hemisphere. Wow. Uh, yeah. Th- th- tons of uh, black truffles each year. So back to the dog in booties, there's one bloke from a mob called the Truffle and Wine Company, uh, Alex Wilson, and he talks about how the dog will indicate that there's a truffle in the ground, then the hunter does some light exploration, finds the top of the truffle, takes a slight, tiny slice to check color and ripeness if it's early in the season, then tags the truffle and moves on each hunter might drop 800 tags a day. So if you can imagine doing 800 lunges a day plus digging on your hands and knees. It's not for the faint heart. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You'd almost be wanting your dog to say, oh, yeah, no, there's nothing around there. <laughs> bloody 800 lunges. God, just imagine their thighs. Uh, apparently each state in Australia... Produces truffles except Northern Territory, um, but they're not even close. Not even close to what um, what WA particularly Mangium Ups doing. Uh, the truffles and the black truffles they got sell. Well, oh, actually, let's let's throw another question at you. How much how, in Australian dollars? How much per kilogram? Um, do you think you would pay for a truffle, a black truffle?
0: Oh, um, oh, it's got to be. I do like black truffles, but they are mm. quite, quite expensive. Though, now that I think about it, though, I feel like truffle oil is like everywhere these days. So yep. maybe they're not as, as expensive as I think. I don't know. I'm gonna say oh, I think a kilo of truffles it's got to be hundreds of dollars, surely. I don't know, say
1: $200 a kilo. I don't uh, know. Let's throw that onto a logarithmic start, scale. Two and a half thousand bucks a kilogram that are getting for these black truffles. So, two and a half thousand bucks a kilogram oh, isn't. Oh, sh- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no wonder they call it black gold. No wonder they're oh bloody my. happy with it. <laughs> uh, 800 lunges?
0: Uh, yeah, I'd do yep. 800 lunges for that sort of price i cannot believe that holy moly
1: i know it's an enormous one so they get so well that black truffle that's the the second most uh expensive in the world the there's one called the alba white truffles uh it's foraged in europe but i haven't been able to farm it um over here uh so the dogs have got the booties on to ensure that there's no contact. Between the dog and the prized fungus, so as this bloke said, if you if they get a toenail through the truffle, it tends to devalue it, and also keeping the dog's paws off the truffles enables them to receive halal certification.
0: Oh, right, that makes sense actually. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, now back to the the trees. The the, the wine companies Wilson said uh, the reason why the cultivator black truffles are so prolific. In the regions the native carry trees, and he said that they produce a, a beautiful, rich carry loam, which has great organic material. It's low on clay and sand, clay and sand, and also the climate they've got there. It's very sort of Mediterranean, and they're not on the coast, so they don't get the, whole, the uh, salt spray or harsh uh, winds. So it can take five to seven years for truffle crops to appear. Um, not fast turnaround, but they, the output increases each year, which is also part of the reason that the output from Manjumup is increasing. All right. So, yeah. So look, to have just on the, a little, finish off a little bit on the the technicals. So to have truffles, you have to have trees. Uh, Truffles are the fungal fruiting body of a specialized uh, fungus known as mycot. Mycorrhiz- mycorrhizae. Uh, the mycorrhiza becomes colonized on the roots of certain host trees, mainly oaks, hazelnuts, and stone pines. So the fungus and roots live in a symbiotic relationship where the fungus uses the tree's resources created by photosynthesis, like you know, carbohydrates and sugars, and the tree receives solubilized nutrients like phosphate from the fungus. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so tree, uh, tree, and fungus are in a mutually beneficial partnership. In two thousand and nineteen, there were seventy known truffle orchards in WA, covering just over three hundred hectares in total. Of these um, uh, inoculated trees. So you've also got those trees coming in and being brought in there. So look, from an early timber industry that continues to this day through arduous clearing of trees to make farming land to the hundreds of hectares of new varieties needed to grow truffles, Mangiamath is definitely a town that grows on trees.
0: That's, I love that idea of... You've cut the forest down for farmland, and now you're replanting it for truffles. It's yeah. just there's a little bit of irony there, isn't there? Um, there
1: is. Wow. Yeah, there that's
0: it cool. Is. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was interesting. That is really cool. Because I imagine there's some of these. Because these are like ancient forests, there must be some oh. huge trees in this area as well.
1: Oh yeah, look, massive. I didn't. I. I. I can't quote you anything. I have seen the pictures of them and they're just like ridiculously scary high if you're having to climb, climb up them. Um, but, yes, they are very old, very old growth. I mean, it was what attracted people there. It was just such good, big hardwood forest.
0: Yeah, and some of these hardwoods are like uh, we have a lot of uh, ironbark, uh, the type of gum. Uh, up here and it's like it's the most beautiful wood to 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 have uh, and it lasts forever, but the problem is, it's so difficult to work with. It's like concrete. It's it's yep. incredibly hard to to cut and uh, and drill through and everything like that. It's it's an it's it's sort of a nightmare. It's a blessing and a curse because it it is it lasts forever. So once you build something out of it, um, you know, or, or use it as like garden edging or, or something like that, it's perfectly fine in the ground. It'll it's very stable and everything like that. But um, it is mm. very difficult to work with, unfortunately. So. So, um, but no, very cool. The town of Manjimup. Never even heard of it before. But there you go. That that area of WA, um, that sort of like southern WA below below Perth, is an area that's very much a, a, a blind spot to me. I'm not I'm not familiar with that area really at all. But I've heard oh, it's that it's really beautiful. really lovely.
1: Yeah, yeah I've yeah, only been there once, but yeah,
0: it's got that as you said, that Mediterranean sort of climate. I'm, I'm actually surprised it's not more populated. Um, probably everyone from that area is telling me to shut up because they don't <laughs> want to be bombarded with, with, um, with new people moving into the area. It's their nice, nice, wonderful little quiet area of Australia of the world.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little bit of an open secret, but it is. Uh, another thing, we're building up a list of places we'd like to see. <laughs> Yes,
0: I'm gonna. I'm just gonna have to quit everything. Yeah. Buy a caravan. I'm just gonna have to start driving around and go, go, uh, go all around Australia uh, to see all these wonderful places that we talk about. So yeah,
1: yeah. Get now, the juices flowing. Let's
0: move on to wonderful places that we sometimes talk about. There's a <laughs> there's <laughs> fifty, 50 uh, infrastructure projects have been axed all over the country. Uh, as the Australian government has going to slash 50 high risk infrastructure projects across the country with $7 billion in savings put towards other nation building projects. Honestly, reading this, uh, I do feel like I'm in an episode of Utopia. Uh, ah,
1: yeah.
0: Because this just very much had the vibes. Uh, for our international listeners that don't know, there's a satirical uh, TV show. Uh, called Utopia about a government department that does nation building projects, and basically it's it's a satire of bureaucracy, and it is very good. Um, wait, 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 The infrastructure minister Catherine Catherine King has said uh, that they're axing <laughs> commuter car commuter car parks, highway upgrades, and fast rail projects they're going to have their funding slashed on the chopping block is the Geelong fast rail the Sydney to Newcastle no Newcastle faster rail upgrade the Truro bypass and the New England high highway project uh, are among those 50 projects that will no, no longer receive money from the Commonwealth. So I think I want to stress this here. the These projects that are being cut, as much as we're saying that their funding is being cut, it doesn't necessarily mean that these projects won't go ahead. It's that the... Com- so how funding works in Australia is generally that you'll have a local government, a state government, and a federal government or Commonwealth government component of the funding of those particular infrastructure projects. Uh, these are. This is the Commonwealth government cutting the funding for these projects. So, the local and state governments may proceed with these projects at a at a lower level, or perhaps they'll raise money in other in other ways. So, uh, the government has also taken to axe, unfortunately, commuter car parks and. Queensland and New South Wales, which were criticised in an order general report labelled as pork barrelling by Labor. Mm, pork barrelling, that's a callback to uh, a couple yeah. of episodes ago. Yeah. The, the minister has flagged a number of the former coalition government's plans that were undeliverable due to cost blowouts and lack of clear benefits. She said the review painted, and I quote, a sad and frankly sorry picture regarding the health of the infrastructure investment pipeline. She said the former coalition government had engaged in, and again, I quote, economic vandalism, end quote, by announcing projects that it knew it could not deliver. The Shadow Infrastructure Minister Brett, uh, Bridget McKenzie said, had said that she completely rejected King's characterisation, adding that the minister and her response to the review had been hyper-partisan. To be fair, though, to, to uh, Shadow Infrastructure Minister Bridget McKenzie, of course she's going to say that. There's nothing else she could say. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, Seventeen projects totalling three point five billion across New South Wales will be axed, while twelve projects costing two point six billion in Victoria, nine costing two hundred and thirty million in Queensland, will face the chop. So that's the vast majority. But the three biggest were the New South Wales uh, Great Western Highway upgrade, which is Cattedumba to Lithgow. That was about two billion dollars of Commonwealth funding. Uh, Katoomba, yeah. What did I
1: say? You said Katoomba.
0: Oh, did I? <laughs> um, I, added a, I added an A in there. Uh, Queensland Sunshine Coast Malula River Interchange Upgrade, that was $160 million. I do hope this continues to go ahead because that area is a nightmare with traffic, especially in the morning, and that's going to hurt me personally. Uh, the WA's Pinjara Heavy Deluge deviation system was 200 million. Unfortunately, the state budget for this was. $50 $50 million. so I don't think that project's going to go ahead at all. Um, and as I said, these amounts are the Commonwealth funding allocation, not the not the project's total value. So both the Sunshine Coast-Malula River interchange and the New South Wales Great Western Highway upgrade are probably still going to go ahead. They may be scaled down or, or, or revised in some ways. Um, Minister King said that the government had undertaken considered consultation with the states and territories about these cuts through jurisdictions, did not always disagree. They had created a list of projects that the Commonwealth would partner on and there should be no surprises to any of the state leaders. I feel like this was her hedging her bets to say, you can't say that we didn't do it because we t- we talked to you about it. Um, yeah. You can't have a jab at the government. She did say that every state... Every single state is getting a fair share of the infrastructure pipeline. And most importantly, especially for you, is that the Melbourne Airport Railway Link is still being funded. Is it ever going to happen? Probably not. Don't
1: know. Just after the fast train from Melbourne to Sydney, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look up. Pardon me can, I can sort of understand the need to um rein in some of these things from you know, wild promises from both liberal and labor and projects started. If you're actually serious about you know addressing the budget, there's some sense to there, but there's always cost blowouts, it's always the other team's fault, and it's <laughs> It's always these things are, you know, possible as visions for the future in order to be elected, but then when the rubber meets the road, tend to get shafted in on this. So look, I, you know, um, uh, Catherine King probably hasn't got the easiest job. She's not going to be she's not going to be popular about this. So no, they no, I,
0: I don't for her.
1: Yeah, they often throw people into that role if they've got um plans for future uh, leadership roles. So I'd keep an eye idea on I'd keep an eye on her to see whether this is just sort of a, a bit of a trial by by fire. Uh yeah, I think it's disappointing, but you know, from my point of view as the, the taxpayer and that, you know, if you can't you haven't got the money for it. And you know, with with the COVID and that with all the um money that was basically thrown at everything, you know, slot, absolutely sloshed around in buckets full that had never been seen at any other time in Australia's history. Uh I can sort of see the need for having a little bit of a, a, a reining in. But for me, I think maybe it's time to uh, remove funding from the federal government. It's a position that I've sort of had for quite a while where I think the federal government just essentially needs to be looking after um, the defence and the judicial role and just be funded by the states. Unfortunately, you've got this centralised power and centrally funded organisation that's able to make these uh, these deals with the states and then pork barrel and use political influence to essentially work its influence all around Australia. Now, if the role was reversed and federal government depended on the kindness of the, the states... I think it would be a very different matter in things like this. States would have to compete on their their own. There'd have to be a good reason to go to a a, a place. So instead of uh, all this you know, bloody rubbery figures and shifting money across uh, all these states and everyone sort of getting their, their little taste of it... Uh, I'd like to see that sort of decentralisation. That's sort of as a side issue and a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a political ideological thing from mine. But I, I think this is another good argument for removing them. But at the end of the day, I think uh, it's 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 understandable. And again, I hate to uh, hate to be sort of coming down a little bit in support of some of these things. But I can sort of get it.
0: There are. I'm going to counter you on that because there's a really good reason that I think the federal government should be involved with, especially these major, major projects funding. Um, and that is from someone that is geographically in a very large state. We, we do have a very small population in Queensland. And as a result, if we relied fully on our own, uh, our own kitty, if you like, I don't think we'd be able to afford some of the some of the things that we need some of the services that we need um and as a result victoria new south wales would just be these utopias of beautiful infrastructure and in the rest of australia will be a wasteland um, you know pl- places like the northern territory and wa very sparsely populated um but their infrastructure requirements quite often are, are similar you know um So I I do think having the federal government as an arbiter to hand out the cash isn't necessarily the worst thing. But it it can easily be corrupted. So I agree with you there. I
1: thought you you said you had a compelling argument.
0: (laughs) As a Queenslander, I don't want this to happen because uh, Queensland Health is bad enough. And if it gets defunded by the federal government, we're completely going under. Um, Can I make a suggestion? I'm not moving to New South Wales or Victoria. No. Tru- truffles. I hear
1: this. <laughs> growing in truffles. Yeah, That's exactly.
0: <laughs> um, what was what I did find interesting, and I actually didn't mention, uh, was that the government is actually going to re—they're not saving that money necessarily. They're reallocating funds to other projects. Um, so, there, there is a bit of a shuffle around. They, they are going to save some money, uh, but they, they are shuffling some of that money around as well, um, giving extra funding to certain projects that have run over. So, one of them was uh, Queensland's Logan to the Gold Coast faster rail uh, upgrade. So, they're getting $1.75 right. billion. Uh, Western Australia's Metronet, which is their uh, – I think it's Perth's local uh, – Like light rail system Uh, They're getting a billion dollars of additional funding To expand that um, South Australia is
1: part of the shuffling out of the other things
0: Yeah, so, so there was a few things that are getting Allocated more money and, and I actually think it's it's not necessarily a bad thing I think the last government Was really bad at throwing Money around oh. uh Because I think they knew they weren't going to Be in power for much longer it, it, So you can kind of, you know, a bit of pork Barrelling, you're sort of buying up support and things Like that Um mm. Whereas now this government is, well, at least I would like to think this government is sort of reallocating that money a bit more fairly. Uh, but it's yet to be seen. It, it, we're in well, this weird I position. Can't,
1: I can't think of any reason why the federal government <laughs> wouldn't allocate it fairly and impartially.
0: <laughs> well, as I was about to say, we're in this weird <laughs> position, like we spoke about with the pork barreling situation, where, you know, a lot of these projects are within Labor seats currently. But that is because Labour currently holds the majority. So it is it is a bit hard to see. Is this pork barreling as we know it? Or is this a case of just they're already in the seats because they hold the majority of the seats?
1: That's a very um, fair that, that's so, an incredibly fair point. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, you know, in the coming years, because obviously these a lot of these projects are multi-year year projects and and it may be yet to be seen how states and territories, their governments are going to change. Are we going to, is there going to be more of a clear pork barreling, uh, you know, in the future? We don't know. We're yet to be seen. I'm not saying they're not doing that now. I'm not really supporting this federal government too much, even though it sounds like I am. Um, I just think that pro- by the reading this document, this infrastructure project report, it does sound like this is a good move. Uh, is this going to be a good move moving forward with some of these projects? I don't know. Cause again, some of them are in, still in quite the early stages and they may completely blow out. One thing that did surprise me though, was there was a lot of commuter car parks. Like I think there was like 15 or something. Um, which just seems like a weird thing to spend millions of dollars on. A car park, by its very nature, doesn't sound like it should be very expensive. Uh, why the federal government was throwing so much money at them in very specific
1: electorates does smell like pork barreling to me. It, it look it it, it does, um, and I think you know there's always the uh, the, the the government. Um, Uh, you know markup added to a whole lot of these things and look there is all you know again there's rules and regulations about how things can be constructed and etc so i'm with you on the the price on in terms of the commuter car parks uh i can understand how when they're located strategically such as at train stations or at bus term in fact the one that's springing to mind is there's um up up in sydney you know i've, I've got family over on um on the, on the north shore side and there's uh, uh what's oh, there's some bus service b line or something like that which is basically um a separate bus service um that runs To a specific number of stops, and then takes everybody into town, and they've got car parks attached to that, so that people can use their their card. um, Was it Opal card up there? So if you've actually gone in the car park and you've caught the bus, uh, it doesn't cost you anything to park there. Now, in terms of yeah, eliminating traffic on the the road and the benefits of that, because it was actually uh, yeah. my dad had said a couple of times when I was up there before, forget driving to town. Why don't you do this? And I thought, I thought, oh, shit, I'm not getting on the bloody bus. They said, no, no, give it a go. And i got to say, it was one of the best sort of public transport experiences I've had. So I can see why you'd put them in. It doesn't justify the insane pricing of it, but the actual functionality of it, I can see a reason for that.
0: Yeah. And that's why I feel like this could so easily be pork barrelling because mm. the the potential commitment to it from a government point of view in terms of funding isn't isn't hugely high compared to some of these other projects, obviously. Um, and it just feels like a very a very good uh, pork barrelling type situation to be like, oh yeah, look, we're. Um, We're helping you with when you, when you commute, you know, um, now you can park your car here and and all the rest. It just, it just feels, um, like very low hanging fruit in terms of pork barreling. So, which, you know, this government has obviously looked at and gone, that's probably what's going on. So not to say that these commuter car parks aren't necessarily a good idea. I'm sure some of them are. Um, But the fact that the previous government approved so many of them right before
1: it left office just smells a bit like pork barreling to me. Look, I'd obviously have to be suspicious, but using, because you actually just struck a real chord with me before when you said about the number of Labor seats and you can say, well, you can't really say it's pork barreling just because- Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Sorry. Not necessarily. Yes. You're quite right on that qualification. But it did make me think of that differently, and even as you were saying that then, and I was thinking about that uh, example of uh, that that bus line, the North Shore, because surprise, surprise, government stuffed up bloody, uh, the rail link that was meant to be going around around there and sold off land and all that. But uh, arguably, because there's no rail which is a really great uh way to mass transport people they're having to uh substitute buses so if they're trying to substitute buses in order to reduce uh traffic on the, the the road and you know do the whole the whole climate change thing it's actually quite reasonable to target um target a lot of the the places in the north shore over there in sydney which uh for the most part, tend to lean a little bit more towards the, the, the Liberal liberal side, not exclusively, and certainly um, bloody Abbott lost his, his one over there, uh, but you could argue that if you look deeper into where the car park's being placed as a need, does that actually answer the question, or is it pork barrelling, or a combination of the two?
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, you know. Obviously, it's it's hard to definitely call it that, which is why you know it's not technically illegal as well, because you can say, well, yeah. there are merits for this, and people need this, and people want it, and da 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 da. So that that's, I guess, that's the sort of grey area with pork barreling. And as much as I go, this this looks like pork barreling, <laughs> it is it is a bit of a grey area because you know we're never going to know, sort of thing. So
1: got a feeling a bit unclean about being so reasonable about these bloody. Bureaucrats. <laughs> 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 All right.
0: <laughs> Let's move on and to, to find out what happened this week in Australian history.
1: Come from All right. This week in Australian history, we're covering the 14th to 20th of November. Now, unlike last week, this middle of November, that's actually a bit sparse on interesting history. So we've got one story in there, um, but the rest will be the – uh, the usual sort of interesting bits of facts. November 14th, 1913. The domed reading room in the State Library of Victoria opens. I've been in there. It's pretty impressive. Um, you know, you make comments about uh, the grandiose things, but yeah, it it does look pretty good. Uh, 1927. Bart Cummings, one of the most successful Australian racehorse trainers and known as the Melbourne Cup King, was born in South Australia. Cummings trained 12 Melbourne Cup winners from 1960. Wow. Yeah, wow. exactly. Hell, what, is, what was his
0: secret, I wonder? Oh. Uh, Pumped him full of steroids. Truffles.
1: Truffles. <laughs> <It's right. laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so he, he trained twelve between nineteen sixty five to two thousand and eight. Uh, two thousand and five on November fourteenth, bomb threats are made to the Brisbane public transport system. November fifteenth, nineteen ten, the destroyers Parramatta. Um, And for some reason, I have Parramatta written twice. Two destroyers, Parramatta and another one, arrive in Australia, the first ships built for the Australian Navy. Um, That's in 1910. 1934, Qantas de Havilland DH-86 crashes after departing from Longreach during its delivery flight. Not a good time to crash. 1972, sorry, Colin. And it's never a good time to crash. No, no, no <laughs> let, let alone for let us deliver this magnificent advance in flight towards to, to you, you know, for the uh, safety concerned airport air uh, airline. So, no. Nineteen seventy-two, the first aircraft hijacking in Australia of Ansett Airlines Flight Two Three Two from Adelaide to Alice Springs. Now, this is the one that had a little bit of a story in it because I hadn't heard of, hadn't heard of this one. Uh, 1972, I mean, was only a bloody little tacker. Uh, Flight 232 was a trip from Adelaide, South Australia, aboard a Fokker Friendship bound for Alice Springs. It was Australia's first aircraft hijacking um, after an attempted hijacking in 1960. And uh, a male passenger subsequently identified as Miloslav Harabnich, H- a uh, Czech immigrant. He'd gotten the flight and had a sawn off armor light rifle concealed and a sheath knife strapped to his leg. So, about a half an hour before they were about to uh, land, um, as the flight was making its descent into Alice Springs Airport, he emerged from the dunny. Produced a gun and said to the flight attendant named Kay Gorham, This is a hijack. Hrabnitsch then forced his way into the cockpit over the captain informed hererick that he was unable to speak to him as he was too busy landing the plane <laughs> so, so yeah, this, yeah, <laughs> well, listen mate i don't have time for this <laughs> exactly <laughs> so hererick was informed by uh, gorm the, the the flight attendant we named earlier that he needed to be seated for landing and he complied and he complied uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly <laughs> so when the plane landed uh, police started negotiating with uh, the hijackers So according to Gorham's account Hrabnic, uh stated his motive was not financial So he didn't ask for any money But that he wanted to commit suicide in a spectacular way By parachuting into a remote location And surviving for as long as possible Before he killed himself So his demands were that he wanted a light aircraft, a parachute, and a jumpsuit. (laughs) So so they grabbed a civilian pilot and a flying instructor, the the local aero club manager, Ozzy Watts, uh, who volunteered, and his Cessna aircraft. So an undercover cop, uh, Paul Sanderman, posted as Watts' navigator, and he was also on board the Cessna. Now, according to the flight attendant, Kay Gorham, Harab Nech became suspicious upon seeing Sanderman and requested Gorham search Sanderman for weapons. So he said to the flight attendant, go on searching for weapons. Gorham did so, but didn't inform the hijacker when she felt a small firearm that Sanderman had <laughs> hidden. it. Um, it was then sta- Gorham then stated that the policeman went for his gun the hijacker shot him in the hand and stomach, and then ran off. And uh, Watts, the, the local air club manager, uh, who'd been shown how to use a gun minutes earlier, began shooting at him. Then police marksmen opened fire, and Harabnich was wounded. Uh, he retreated to a dish and to a ditch, where he fatally shot himself. Oh my god. Yeah, so he was – 1973 is when they actually identified him. May 1973 is when they released his name, and Constable Sanderman got the uh, Queen's Commendation for Bravery. So whilst there's a bit of humor in there, it was a bit of a bizarre little – a hijack attempt.
0: This needs to be made into like a black comedy film or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is from beginning to end. This whole thing is just wild. I
1: and I think I've got no demands. I just want to commit I want to commit suicide by getting parachuting into some remote location, seeing how long I can survive, and then killing myself. What a weird, what a how weird. absurd. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. That was it. Uh, November 16th, 1920, the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service, later known as Qantas, is founded. Um, 1952, Lang Hancock discovered iron ore deposits in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. 2004, the train Spirit of, Ta- Spirit of Townsville from Brisbane, bound for Cairns, is involved in a, a train crash. 2005 Australia qualifies for the 2006 FIFA World Cup.
0: Didn't win it though. No. November
1: 17th, 1954. Melbourne Underworld criminal figure, writer and actor, Chopper Reed is good
0: old Chopper Reed.
1: What a lunatic. (laughs) What a loony. What an absolute loony.
0: But Big, big personality. Can't deny that.
1: Yeah, look, he he potentially will um he potentially will get that sort of Ned Kelly type status in about you know another 80, 100 years. He's he's sort of moving towards that where, you know, when you forget about all the crap stuff that he's he's done, uh and starts to become a little bit more infamous and then legendary. Uh yeah, he's probably going to occupy a similar a similar spot. He certainly yeah. made a name for himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 2001 on November 17th, Australian tennis player Leighton Hewitt becomes the youngest man to be world number one in tennis. Now, ah, you know, I just should have looked up who was the youngest woman become number one in tennis didn't do that sorry listeners you're gonna to have to uh check that one out yourself november 18th in 1941 operation crusader the third and ultimately successful attempt to relieve the siege of Dr- Tobruk, begins 2005 a Bali court finds australian model michelle leslie Guilty of possessing psychotropic drugs and sentences her to three months in prison. November 19, 1800, the first copper coins circulated in New South Wales. Now, I had a bit of difficulty finding out details of these copper coins. I couldn't, couldn't locate it other than it being mentioned in this. Um, this was a, from a Wikipedia article. But when I was trying to find it, there was uh, in the early days of the colony, there was Spanish coins, uh, want to say, Portuguese and another nationality that were accepted as currency within there until um until Australia started minting some of it, saying, or until that co- until the New South Wales colony started minting its own coins. But I don't know whether those copper coins were from other countries or whether they were local so i and in queensland
0: there the, were a lot of people that used rum as currency yeah yeah exactly which still should
1: so yes yeah, still should <laughs> so that look you're talking about queensland and uh, how do you how do you build the state in the absence of a you know a, a federal government A rum-based currency. A rum-based
0: currency. I love it. I love it.
1: Put on the blockchain. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, 1834, the first permanent European settlement on the north coast of Bass Strait is established at Portland. 1937, Hubert Opperman completes an epic bicycle ride from Fremantle, Western Australia, well, actually, have, have a bit of a guess. Where did he ride from? He took off from Fremantle in WA. Where do you reckon he rode to? Uh,
0: from Fremantle, if you're asking me, you, okay, I'm thinking it's probably not, Perth. But if you're asking me, then it's, yeah. it's definitely not Perth. He must oh, have sorry. gone across Australia. So he probably, it's probably uh, Brisbane, Sydney, or Melbourne—it's got to be one of the yeah. capitals, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, good, good reasoning. So he went to to Sydney. <laughs> oh, bloody <my> <laughs> <laughs> road to Sydney <laughs> in nineteen thirty-seven across On all those, you know, beautiful roads and everything. Yeah, guess how, yeah.
0: Guess the how long it took
1: him? Yeah, across, yeah, shit, across the bloody Nullarbor. Oh, I don't know, months probably, surely. That <laughs> that would be my scheduling. 13 days, 10 hours, and 11 minutes. Holy shit, he was hauling ass. He Bloody was ice. pumping. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. that's, I almost sort of want to have that independently verified. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. How many trucks did he jump on the back of? Yeah, Come
1: on. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a massive effort. Um, 1941 on November the 19th, the cruiser HMAS Sydney is involved in a mutually destructive battle with the German ship Cormoran off Cormoran, Cormoran,
0: Cormoran, yeah,
1: Yeah, Cormoran off, uh, Western Australia, all 645 aboard Sydney die.
0: And they only found the wreck a few years ago, actually. It was a complete mystery. We never knew what, we actually didn't know what happened to the HMAS Sydney, uh, how did you not know? Well, it was obviously <laughs> presumed lost with all hands. But the but the thing was is it because it, it just disappeared. We didn't didn't know exactly what was going on and, and all hands were lost. Um and we didn't know where it was. Obviously it had sunk, uh, but mm. we didn't know where whereabouts it was. Um it wasn't until I think it was only I wanna say in the last five years that we actually found the wreck wow. of of the Sydney. So yeah, it was a while ago. Wow,
1: I, I, that's interesting. No, well, I, I said how did they not know because I, th- I would have thought there might have been radio things saying, you know, we've we spotted someone, we're engaging, or I suppose if wh- – do you happen to remember where they found it? Uh, it was so, so – uh, They said obviously, off Western Australia, but, like, was it, like, yeah. way off the, the, the
0: um, coast? So the problem with the whole thing. So we knew okay. When I say they didn't know what happened, it's initially they didn't know what happened because uh the the ship the, the two ships engaged each other and then they disengaged each other. And th- this whole thing has been kind of like shrouded in mystery and controversy because the Cormorant uh was a mo- it was a military ship but it was more like a like a um, like a merchant ship disguised, uh, like we were talking last week about um, oh, yeah. surface surface yep. raiders. That that's yep. sort of what it was. Um, the Sydney was a, a cruiser, so it was a significantly large ship, massive, like powerful ship, um, and, and had done awesome work in the Mediterranean and things like that during the start of the war. So the fact that the Sydney had engaged what seemingly was easy prey and then they disengaged and it just never oh. it never returned home uh and at that point it was realized that it had sunk and they found uh they found like floats and and stuff like that i, I actually think they found uh oh, what are they called uh um oh. Harley float, I think they're called. It's like an old school uh, life raft kind of thing. Oh, like, I think yep, they yep. found a couple of them um, and things like that. So it was very obvious the ship had had been sunk, uh, but where she lay, they didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. And it was in, uh, yeah, but it was only a few years ago, like in the last- oh, shit, it's 2023, so it's probably 10 years ago now, Yeah, 10 years, 10 years. <laughs> um, uh, that they actually discovered it, and it was a big deal. Actually, I'm trying to think. I was in the military when they <laughs> discovered it, so it must have been I left in 2010, so it must have been, yeah, Jesus, th- more than 13 God. years ago, yeah, oh, my yeah, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that they found it. And it was, yeah, it was off the coast, off, off um. I think it was pretty close to, to like the, the Shark Bay area actually, um, oh, yeah. And uh, the cormorants down there as well. It, uh, but I don't know if they actually know exactly how the battle went. Um, because I, again,
1: my my inexperienced uh, layperson is uh, assessment is probably poorly. For both of them,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do think there was some of the uh, some of the Cormoran crew. I'm pretty sure survived. That's how we know what sort of oh, did happen. Right. Well, but I think the problem is is that that's really the only source because all the uh, all the Australian sailors died. So we don't know exactly you know, we're only going off what the other guys had said. So until we found the wreck, it was kind of like a big deal, but I don't know if the wreck itself actually told us much more than we already knew. So this is one of those things that I should actually like look into a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's it's a big deal. Actually.
1: What interesting facts, isn't there?
0: And the, uh, there are pieces of the HMAS Sydney in Sydney Harbor, uh, that the fleet salutes as it passes so uh,
1: yeah uh,
0: so it's a bit it, it is a it is like a, a big deal in the royal australian navy well
1: 645 hard. people's a lot to lose
0: yeah and we're very fortunate that our our navy hasn't lost many ships with all hands uh at all really and i think actually now that i think about it i think this is the only one that we've lost with all hands like this so it is a big deal
1: 1996 on november 19th uh us president bill clinton makes a visit to australia in which he addresses both houses of parliament uh 1996 renowned prick martin bright is sentenced to 35 consecutive sentences of life imprisonment plus 1035 years without parole for the port arthur massacre
0: i i like how i'm sorry i shouldn't laugh because this is terrible but i do like that they've specifically said yeah. 1035 <laughs> years without parole as if it was ever gonna happen. Oh, just a thousand yeah. more years, you know. I can, I can get there.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, it did. It did amuse me that number. I can't say I'm losing any real uh, sympathy there. Uh, and finally, November twentieth, two thousand and two, Australian Prime Minister John Howard said that Australia would begin withdrawing. It's 150 commandos from Afghanistan later in the month. Um, That went well. uh, Arguments about we should have been there in the first place. But anyway, I suppose started the process. So, yeah. Uh, And that rounds out our... This week in Australian history, and it was a little bit longer than what I expected for something that didn't, I thought wasn't going to be uh, that <laughs> jam-packed so much longer that I think after that, I could do with a beer and a trivia question.
0: Yep, I'm pretty thirsty, actually. Uh, <laughs> now, it seems <laughs> it has become a little bit of a tradition that we have two questions. Uh, during this 4X bottle top question. And these are both genuine 4X bottle top questions. Uh, I actually went out and bought some 4X. Uh, I had to drink a few to get some good questions that weren't (laughs) cricket related. There's a lot of cricket ones and I don't like cricket. So so I think these are two reasonably easy ones. Uh, One I'm sure you'll definitely get basically straight off the bat uh the second one i'm not sure cricket yep (laughs) well i mean we haven't mentioned that the cricket world cup was recently on and australia actually won and beat india but neither of us really give a shit so um,
1: (laughs) we won the world cup make some smart ass comment that of course i knew about that and throw some statistics i didn't even know it was a thing <laughs>
0: <laughs> India is very upset about it, and Australians, quite frankly, could take it or leave it. We don't really care, which is definitely adds insult to injury. Um, <laughs> anyway, which Australian state was the first to grant women the right to vote?
1: Oh, which Australia? Like, I'm tempted to go back to to history with um, Victoria being all. You know, self righteous about these these things, and as we've pointed out a couple of times, how South Australia has just gazumped them so many times. Yeah, in fact, you know what? I could go South Australia.
0: Yes, it was South Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was South Australia. As as we know, South Australia is genuinely the most progressive state <laughs> in Australia. As much as as you said, Victorians like to think they are, but they're not. Um, <laughs> It's South Australians are like Victorians, but they're actually nice people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, now, between what years was Bob Hawke, Prime Minister of Australia? The legendary Bob Hawke. Oh,
1: God. I should be able to remember this because I was alive and voting then. I <laughs> uh, Bob Hawke. Wow. Uh, This is sort of stretching my memory. Let's see. Porky, 80. I think 84 might have been when he got in. 85, I think, was the start of Australia's despicable slide into the surveillance state with the attempted introduction of the Australia card Um and what do you have, a couple of terms. I'm going to say 84 to 89.
0: You are so freaking close. Oh, what was it? It is 1983... Ooh. To
1: 1991. Oh, oh, yeah, close but no cigar. You're,
0: yeah, but it's so close. <laughs> um, I'll give you that. We'll let you have that because Paul Keating. Uh, well, I mean, he basically gave it to Paul Keating, if I'm honest, uh, in 1991, and then yeah. Keating lost to to Howard. Who was in office until Kevin 07 started, took it from him?
1: And um, the, the funny thing is, Keating was never bitter about that. Nah, <laughs> yeah. I would be, oh, but oh, oh, John Howard. John Howard was sarcasm. I I think Keating just <laughs> despised the fact that he bloody lost to Howard.
0: Ah, oh, I mean, as he should. Also, but Howard. 11 years, 260 days or something,
1: Yeah.
0: um, only Menzies beat him. uh, And so, you know, we apparently really liked John Howard for some reason. I don't know why. Um, Mm,
1: No, I don't know why
0: either. (laughs) Growing up, like, I liked Howard because that's all I knew for a long time. He was just... He was the prime minister. What do you mean? There's no other prime minister. It's John Howard. Yeah, Um, yeah, that's yeah.
1: I can can get that.
0: Yeah, as a kid, I kind of liked it because I I didn't know any different, you know. Now that I'm older, I'm like, bloody hell, what was going on? Too much (laughs) lead in the water or something? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. It was, it was the leaded petrol. That's what did it. Um, That's
1: right. Well, oh God, maybe it was.
0: <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe, give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, Join us next week For another episode Of Australia Talks And remember At r slash Australian We are Australian Thanks for listening And tell your mum I love
1: her See you DK
0: See ya